All right, Two Cities Church, why do we take the time to show you videos like that? It's because our fear is honestly that that is maybe where some of you are. Did you hear what Jacob said? He said, I was religiously alive, but I was spiritually dead. We talk about being in church, but not being in Christ, being baptized, but maybe never really believing. We call it being religiously lost. And here's what I want to just hear hear me say at the beginning of 2024. Do not settle for simply showing up at church. Do not settle for attendance. Desire personal transformation by the gospel. And guys, we're trying to come alongside you, if you haven't realized this, as a church, and two weeks in a row, we gave you a gift. Okay, it's a little booklet, but grab it, okay? We got the prayer guide, I wanna show you this. I wanna show you the connection, okay? We do everything we do on purpose. We are an intentional and deliberate church. Okay, look, last week we gave you, here it is, last week we gave you a plan, this week we gave you prayer. We believe in planning and praying, okay? I want you to know this about our church. We are a both and church. We reject being an either or church. We are going to be focused and flexible. We are going to have strategy and we are going to be spirit led. And so I told you last week that here's what a plan means. A plan means we're serious. I hope you know that. That's how you know someone's serious. How are you serious about losing weight? You have a plan. How are you serious about discipling your family? You have a plan. Okay, so that was last week. I'm not gonna revisit that. This week we wanna talk about prayer, okay? Prayer is the place of dependence. Prayer, prayer is the place of power. Prayer is the place of intimacy. Why are we praying? Why are we starting with the 21 days of prayer? Listen, I don't have a Bible verse for you, you know, that you have to do 21 days. Why do we choose 21 days? Because it's short enough that you'll do it, and it's long enough that it'll make a difference, okay? If we said, guys, we're launching a year in prayer, you guys are like, I give up already, okay? So we're doing 21 days, okay? Here's the other thing. We need to do this together, okay? By the way, if you're not in a community group, uh, you need to go through our Weekender, right? And then you need to get come to a group connect. I think we're gonna be launching 16 new groups this month, okay? You will not get all that you can out of this church, this sermon series, this prayer guide if you're not in a group. Guys, we're, we're gonna do 21 days and it's gonna, we want, what we wanna help you do is we wanna help you know what to say and where to start when it comes to prayer. Those are the two reasons people say they don't pray, pray a lot more than they would. They're like, I don't know what to say and I don't know where to start. We're gonna help you in this guide. So I hope you'll take it, you'll take it seriously, you'll do it with your family, you'll do it with your community group. So the first thing is we're starting the year with a plan and with prayer, but also we wanna celebrate, guys. We, if you were with us over the last month or two, you know that we've been doing a hold the rope offering, okay? Basically, here's what we said. We said, would all of you, and it's always hard to measure if all of you did this, okay? We, we didn't have a financial goal, we had a participation goal. We said, would you give a one-time gift above and beyond normal tithes and offerings to hold the rope? Now, here's what I want you to know. We have a $6 million budget as a church. And it, when it comes to the church world, which is what I understand a little bit about, uh, if, if a church gives 10% of their annual budget for an offering at the end of the year, you're killing it. Well, because of your generosity, we brought in $952,635.38. I know, I know what you're thinking. Who gave 38 cents? Listen, we, we care. We care about every gift, no matter how small we're here, okay? Here's what we're gonna do. Money, one of the things, there's lots of purposes for money. I've talked about that in the past. One of the kingdom purposes for money, for finances, is to fuel and fund 
the mission and help it go forward faster. So guys, thank you so much. We've already been able to make a few phone calls. We're excited this coming week to call our ministry and mission partners to encourage them at the beginning of the year and to give them some gifts to help them go further faster. Let's pray, and then we are officially diving in to our What's Wrong with the Church series. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray that our church would be a place of prayer. Would you make this room a place of prayer? Would, as we leave and as we take these books with us, as we head to our community groups, as we head to our family dinners, as we head to bedtime and, and breakfast and, and all the things that we do, would you help us to do what we're really trying to do here, which is to make and mobilize disciples in an environment of prayer and worship. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you know the name of this series, okay? Here's what it's called. What's wrong with the church, okay? And the answer to that is, well, how much time do you have, right? I can't answer, there's not a sentence, there's not a statement, okay? There's not even one sermon that I can preach. What I'm gonna do over the next seven weeks, and so please come back. By the way, you can't get to know us and we can't get to know you in a week. You're gonna need to come around for the rest of this series to really see if we are the church for you. We say here we're the church for anybody, but not the church for everybody. But anyway, we need to ask the question, what's wrong with the church? And the answer has been, well, a lot of things, and it's always changing, okay? This is why over the centuries, Christians have said the church must go through constant renewal and constant reformation. But it's interesting, I read a lot about this this week, if you look at what do Christians say is wrong with the church, that's different than what non-Christians say. Well, we would expect that, okay? So here's what Christians say is wrong with the church. Like Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, real followers of Jesus. Here's what they say. Here's what's wrong with the church. They give two things. Number one, the church is trying to be cool. Now, here's the good news for you guys. I realized a long time ago I'm not cool, okay? <laughs> You're not even laughing. Like, you are not cool. You are not cool at all. I know. We know. We know. I'm glad you know. Okay, good. Yeah, I'm not cool. We're not cool, okay? Here's what we're trying to do as a church. We're not trying to make the Bible relevant. Like, oh, look at your iPhone. Let me try to... No. We're not trying to make the Bible relevant. We're trying to show the relevancy of the Bible to people. That's what we're trying to do. Okay, the second thing. First thing Christians say, you're trying to be cool. Second thing Christians say is, their biggest complaint is, you've actually left the teaching of the Bible. So here's what happened in COVID. And it happened before COVID in some ways, but really was exacerbated, amplified, magnified by COVID. Is when times get darker, people wanna go deeper, obviously. And so sermonettes and topical this and another sermon on habits in your family and your finances, and it's not enough. It takes the whole Bible to make the whole Christian. Okay, that's what Christians say. What does the world say? Well, a lot. And actually, what's interesting is not much changes over time, so we'll get to all of these in, in the weeks to come, but let me give you a couple. Some say, well, the church is just full of hypocrites. And to that, we have to say, listen, we, we have to understand, you have to understand this about yourself. You're going to be a hypocrite at some level. And so the best thing to do is to be a humble hypocrite, be aware of all your inadequacies, and actually say to people, listen, I'd like to look like Jesus. That'd be really cool if I could look like Jesus. But on my way to looking like Jesus, I'm gonna look like somebody who needs Jesus. That's what, that's what the Christian life looks like. Often more, I look, like, I look more like I need Jesus than I look like Jesus. I wish that wasn't true, but... The second thing people say is, well, the church has become so political, right? And here we are, it's 2024, you're gonna keep hearing me talk about it, here it is, in election year. The problem is, nothing is pre-political anymore, unfortunately. And everything has been politicized. 
The third thing people say is, well, there's a lot of intellectual problems that I have with Christianity. And I was confronted with them in school, and there's different ideas, and there's competing ideologies, and I feel like the church is kind of stuck in the past, and we'll talk about that some. The failure of leaders, scandals, spiritual abuse, all the things that make the headlines. The, the, the honest truth is, most pastors, most church leaders, most Christians are good, humble, faithful people, but unfortunately, that doesn't make the headlines. The final thing, and we'll get into this, this shows up in a couple different churches. What's wrong with the church? The number one answer, way bigger than anything else. Do you know what I'm gonna say before I say it? The Christian biblical sexual ethic. What's wrong with the church? Well, the world's got something to say. The Christians have something to say. With the rest of our time, I want us to look at what Jesus says. We're gonna look at the seven churches in seven weeks. The first church is the church at Ephesus. If you'll turn with me, let's turn to chapter two, verse one. Chapter two, verse one, I just wanna read this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Okay, I wanna talk about, real quickly, we're kinda of introducing the whole series today as well as diving into Ephesus. There are seven churches, why are the seven churches mentioned in the order that they are. Is this like the best church to the worst church or the worst church to the best church? No. This is literally, these are churches in what would be modern day Turkey and they are mentioned in the order of their postal route. So this is just how the letters would be delivered. That's all that is. What I want you to understand is that here we are 50 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus and we already have seven churches in seven different areas. See, we believe that the church, the Bible teaches the church is both universal and local, and this is just basic theology, but good for you to know, if you don't know this already. The church is universal. What do I mean when I say the church is universal? The, the universal church is the invisible church. We can't see it. It's everybody, everywhere, across all time who's ever believed, okay? It's like, okay, that's a lot of people. Like C.S. Lewis is in the universal church, okay? The universal church is the invisible church of God. The local church is when the universal church becomes visible in time and space and in a location. What we see here is he writes to seven different churches. Now all the churches have different problems. Sometimes what he's going to do to a church is commend it. And some churches, we'll see this next week, he only has things to commend. Most churches he commends and he confronts or convicts, if you want a softer word. But this is normally what he does, he commends and then he convicts and then he calls them to something greater. What's interesting, and I want you to just hear this, and maybe you'll understand, for those of you who are interested in this, will understand a little bit more what I'm trying to do up here, because what am I trying to do up here each week? Well, listen real quick. Jesus gives a different word to every church. What every, ch every church needs a different word, from God's word, okay? But here's what I mean by this. It's what theologians call the rhema. What Jesus is giving each church is the rhema. Rhema is a Greek word meaning utterance. Here's what it is. God's word for this church at this moment. If you guys ever wanna know how to pray for me and the other people up here who teach, that's exactly what you wanna pray for. Here's what we want. We want God's word, that's what we start with. We want it for this church at this exact moment. And I know when I'm doing that because when I'm doing that, it's very, very quiet in here. 
And everybody is learning something important together for the moment. I want you to notice one other thing about this is that the early churches targeted cities. Okay? Now, we think it takes all types of churches to reach all types of people in, in all different types of places. But I want you to know, okay, because many of you are new, that we called ourselves Two Cities Church for a reason. And we've been in downtown Winston-Salem the entire time we've existed. And we always came to Winston-Salem not so much with a church vision, but with a city vision. Because you know this, everything flows from the cities. So here's what I want us to see with our time left. I want us to see what Jesus is going to say that the Ephesian church does well. That would be his commendation. I want you to see his confrontation and then his call. First, we'll look at what they do well. Look at me at verses two and three. Here's what it says. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently, and you're bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Okay, here, here, let me just summarize where we're headed with the rest of our time. The church at Ephesus, it had a good head, and it had good hands and a bad heart. And I'm gonna show you all this. But I want you to see, in verses two and three, it's all commendation, and he tells them four things that they're doing well, and these are things that you and your family and your community group and in our church, we would hope that we could do as well. Let me just give you the four things. You can see them in the verses. They rise right out of scripture. The first thing that they were was they were a serving church. Do you see that? Jesus always starts by saying, I know your works. But then the first thing he says is your toil. Okay, what does toil mean? It means to work to the point or place of exhaustion. It is a good thing to go to bed at night, right? To crawl into bed after a, a, a long day and to be exhausted because you've been working for the Lord. I wanna talk about what it looks like, and I think we're, we're growing in these. By the way, you know, the, I, as I give you these, I, these are, I think, in some ways, actual in our church. We're doing them, and I think they also are aspirational. We're pursuing them even more. Here's the, the heart of a serving church is a couple things. Number one, we serve God by serving people made in his image. I want you to know that. Serving God is not some... I don't know, esoteric, religious, spiritual experience. I don't even know what that means, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> serving God is very, very practical. I serve God by serving people in his image. I serve the God I can't see by serving people that I can see. But this is another thing that we have to keep being clarif clarified just because religion creeps into the church so easily. Um, we don't work for our salvation, we work from our salvation, okay? So let me say it a dif different way. Christians are not saved by their works. They're saved by Jesus' works, right? And we serve God because he first served us. Now, this is really important to understand. Um, for us to have, to be a serving church, which is, I think, we're, I think we're at one level, again, we're actually there. Another level, we're aspirationally trying to head there. We have to view ourselves Please hear me say this, all of you, okay? We have, we have to view ourselves here as an army, not an audience. Now, here's the truth, okay? And this is why, right, word for right now for us. When you get a brand new big building, it's easy to view yourself as an audience, not an army. 
I mean, this is, I mean, look around. This is an amazing room. The bigger the church, the better the worship team. The more ministries and programs they have, the more dynamic the kids' ministry, the more fun the youth group, the more consumeristic we can become as a church. See, an audience shows up to be entertained. An army shows up to be equipped. Those are very different. An audience shows up, right? Why do you go to Tanger, Stevens Center, why? To be entertained and to watch the professionals do the work. That's the audience mentality. The audience mentality is, I've heard it described as a football game. I've heard it said before, many churches are like football games. There are 11 people on the field desperately in need of rest. And there are 50,000 people in the stands desperately in need of exercise. We want to have here a army mentality, not an audience mentality, not a celebrity culture, but a servant culture. The second thing that it means if we're going to be a serving church is we have to be all in, not just attend. We, I mean, one of our main values here is stewardship. You'll hear that. You'll see that. And basically, it just means that we're going to be all in with our time, talent, treasure. If you don't know this about this, the way our church started, people ask all the time, well, how did this start and how did it grow so fast? And I don't know all the answers to that. But one of the answers I know is we had 100 people that were on our, what was called our launch team. They were like the first members of our church. And they all said, we're all in with our time, talent, treasure. We're going to tithe, and we understand that tithe means 10% of our income, and we're going to give 10% of our income to the kingdom of God through the local church. Wow. And we're going to use our gifts and we're going to serve in our capacities. And, you know, and we're, we're just all in with our time, talent, treasure. The temptation instead of being all in is simply to attend, right? I read something on Twitter this week, a, a pastor. He said, how many people, he said, let me ask you this question on Sunday. Are you going to go to church with your family or are you going to squeeze it in? Let me just encourage you, by the way, we have nine o'clock service time here. I just was thinking about this today as we're in, this is not, not in my notes. Lots of things I say up here are not in my notes and that can often get me in trouble, okay? <laughs> um, but let's try, there's so much grace here. here. Hear me say this, okay? Let's try to be to the nine o'clock service on time. You need every worship song we are leading you in. You need to get here. You might need to get here a little early and prepare your heart and go, this is a unique moment. We only do this once a week and I wanna be all in. The first thing is they were a serving church. The second thing is they were a separated church. Do you know what it says here? Let's look back at this. Verse two says this. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil. Now, it's not talking about the world, although we can talk about the world. It's like, it's talking about those in the church who claim Christ but do not live like him. It's talking about those, and we all sin. It's not talking about that. We all sin. It's talking about those who live in open, unrepentant sin. 
See, the role of the church, it's interesting. Let's talk about this for a minute. The role of the church is to be distinct and different from the world. Like, like one of the main things we'd like to be in is an, attract, an attractive alternative. Wouldn't that be great? It's like, all right, the world's anxious and angry and, you know, addicted and aimless. And, I mean, the world's all that. And what we want to be is we want to be an attractive alternative. And the only way that you can be, make a difference is if you're different. And so... How do we live different and distinct lives from the world? Well, th- here's what we need to do. We need to protect one another. So the church, here's what the church is. Let me explain it this way. The church's posture toward itself is protection. The church's posture toward the world is prophetic. I'll, I'll get to prophetic in a second, but we're, we're, okay, the old covenants, okay, and these old these churches, and that back in the day, you, you know, to be, a part of the church, you'd sign a covenant. and The covenant would say something like this, we promise to watch over one another in love. That's what this early church did. Here's, here, let me say it more simply. Here's what we should do. If you see sin in, in a brother or sister's life that you know and have a relationship with, you should say something. And this is how you protect the purity and peace of the church. And here's a good rule. Wait till you see it three times. Because the first time you might be like, oh, was that really it? And the second time you're like, am I just trying? No, when you see, th- it'll be very, very hard, by the way, if you bring something to someone, you give them three examples. It'll be very, very hard for them to deny it if they did it three different times. But here, here's the way that we're going to continue to be a separated, a different and distinct church. Here it is. Like, this is real practical, and this could start in your, you know, your marriage would be good and with your kids would be great. A commitment to have courageous conversations. Let me give you the theology under a courageous conversation because I know some of you are so scared, right? And you've played it out and you know what he's gonna say and she's gonna say and they have their, you know, their internal lawyer so they're gonna get defensive. It's all scary, right? Because whenever you confront somebody, you have to deal with their excuses and then you have to deal with their anger and then you have to deal with their tears and that's normally the order. It's very hard on people. So here's the theology under it. I care more about what God thinks than what she thinks. That, that's the, th- I mean, that, that is bottomless. If you can think that, that will, that will put steel in your spine, okay? You need to go to somebody, and by the way, you don't want to be looking forward to confronting them. If you're looking forward to confronting this person, stop. You're not ready yet. I can't wait to tell her. You're not ready to tell her, okay? That's what we know. Um, I love the question, help me understand. Isn't that awesome? Hey, I didn't come up with that. Help me understand. Why do I love it? It's humble and it's hopeful. Do you get both of those? Help me under, you have, to, you have to mean it. It can't be like a manipulative thing you say but you don't really mean. Like, I, help me, please help me understand. I love it because it's humble. Like, I, I may be missing something completely. And it's really, really hopeful. I would like to understand. I believe you have a reason for this. Maybe there's something that you know that I don't know. By the way, you could honestly just look at how Jesus deals with each church as a way to have courageous conversations. That's a whole other sermon, but really quickly, he always commends what he can commend, and then he gives them specific feedback where they need to change, and then he paints a picture of what their life could look like if it changed, and then he commends them again. I call it the commendation sandwich, okay? (laughs) You commend, you confront, and you commend again. Okay, so they were a serving church, 
because they were an army, not an audience. They were a separated church because they were willing to have hard conversations. Third, I want you to see this. They were a serious church, verse two. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and I know you cannot bear with those who are evil. Okay, look here. But you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. Okay, so how, you're testing people. You're looking at teaching and doctrine. You are a serious church. You care about truth. One of the things that we say here is we, ta- we take God's word seriously, but we don't take ourselves seriously. And hopefully that makes us, if you live in the tension, by the way, of all that God said, it kind of makes you confusing. People can't figure you out as a culture. We live, right, in a, to say we're serious today, right? Like, we're serious. Like, nobody's serious today. Are you kidding me? Have you seen how people dress? We live in the most casual, informal culture that has ever existed in America. We live in what's called the first name culture. People don't even tell you their last name. Just, I don't want, don't call me Mr. Mr. Mercer was my dad's name, right? That's what we say. It's like we are just so, we don't like authority. We want everything to, right? Everyone's favorite words are kinda. Kinda. Sorta. Maybe. People like to say, I feel, not I think. People don't like to draw lines. This church cared a lot about doctrine. Why? Well, first of all, they had great Bible teaching. The church was planted by Paul, pastored by Timothy, and taught often by Apollos. Apollos was the, you know, the John Piper of the day. He was, he was considered the greatest preacher around. He would come visit. So this church was deep theology, had deep theology. Here's what I want you to understand about theology. Theology is so important. I mean, we are, you know, I mean... At the heart of any church is its theology, and at the heart of any theology is the gospel message of Jesus Christ. But you can think about a theology. Theology is like the skeleton. If if the church was a human, the theology is like the skeleton. There is no human apart from the skeleton. You build everything off the skeleton structure. That's fair enough. You build your philosophy of ministry and your missional endeavors and, you know, your programs and all of that kind of flows off of that. By the way, it says that they tested. So here's what this means, a couple things. First of all, whenever you... Good theology always has affirmations and denials. So you should know, uh, let me say it this way, a mature Christian knows what they believe and what they don't believe. And those are some, does that make sense? Here's an example. We believe that God made everything out of nothing. That would be an affirmation. Here's a denial. We do not believe in Darwinian atheistic evolution that nobody times nothing equals everything. You need both. You'll only be strong if you understand both what you believe and what you don't believe, your affirmations and your denials. Secondly, it says that they tested the false apostles, those who said they were apostles. This is really interesting. So John MacArthur, who I don't often quote, but John MacArthur, if you don't know who he is, he's, oh man, he's gotta be in his 80s, okay? I think he took over pastoring the church he's pastoring when he was like 28 years old. He's preached verse by verse through the entire New Testament, okay? So when John MacArthur says something, I'm listening, because he's been doing ministry for 50 years in Southern California. 
And here's what he said. He said the number one problem that he's seen in Christians in America in, in over the 50 years of his ministry is a lack of spiritual discernment. It's, you know, you wouldn't leave the front door of your house open, would you? Just let anyone walk in? Nobody would do that. Spiritually, sometimes we open up the front door of our lives, and just because it says Christian. See, the, the danger with false teaching is not just what false teachers, it's not what they're teaching usually, it's what they're failing to teach. False teachers like to talk about heaven, not hell. Faith, not repentance, Okay. Angels, not demons. Um, you know, obedience, but not sin. So they were a serving church. They were a separated church. They were a serious church. Finally, they were a sustaining church. I want you to see this. Look at me at verses two and three. Or verse three, I'm just. Verse three says this. I know you are enduring patiently. That's the first kind of Sustaining. And you're bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. We're going to talk about this more in the weeks to come because there are some churches that are just unbelievable at enduring. So I don't want to say too much here. I'll just say something really quickly. I'll ask you a question. What does it take to discourage you? By the way, Nietzsche said, the character of a man is tested by how much truth he can handle. What does it take to discourage you? I want you, I want you to have staying power. Some of you, it's like you, you go public with your faith at work and it's one raised eyebrow and you're like, I'm never doing that again. It's like you need to read more church history and more Bible. Some of you share something on Facebook and like, I don't know, someone from high school makes a weird comment. You're like, I'm done. We want to be a sustaining church, a serving church, a serious church, a separated church. Now, I want you to see what they did do well. Or sorry, that was what they did well. I want you to see what they didn't do well. Verse four. But I have this against you. All right, even before we see it, do you have a Jesus that can confront you? Or do you just have a Jesus that's made in your image that basically agrees with everything that you do? What we have here is we have a Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible can show up and go, I don't like this about you, and it's personal. I have this against you. Here's what he says. You know this verse, if you've been in church for a while, this is a famous verse. But I have this against you that you have abandoned, some translations say your first love, but probably the best translation is what's here. The love you had at first. Okay, now do you see why I call them? They've got a, a good, big head. They've got good theology, right? And they've got great hands. They're, they're servant-oriented and they're, you know, they're doing all these things. And they have a cold heart, a bad heart. Okay, the first thing that we're told about them that's bad is that they left the love they had at first. Now, anytime you talk about love, it's kind of like, oh no, what do, how do we even talk about love in this culture? Because love in our culture today normally means sentimentality. Love in our culture today means like, I don't know, a feeling or an emotion. We're all hoping to fall in love, like we're some kind of like, it's involuntary and we can't handle it. I want to talk about what love is biblically, and this is so important. This might be just, after I say this, you might be like, all right, Kyle, I'm leaving. Thank you. That's what I needed. Okay? <laughs> I 
That's it. I'm heading out. Got to talk to my kids. Um, here's what love is. Love is, has three components, allegiance, action, and then affection. You see it most clearly in, you see it most clearly in a wedding ceremony, but you probably see it most clearly in a person's relationship, a mom or dad's relationship with their kids. Because it's probably the one relationship, maybe it's spiritual and biological and all of that. It's like, we get this at the mom, dad, to kid level. Here's what this means. Allegiance is, if you wanna deepen your love, you deepen your commitments. So that's why, like, you know, marriage is you stand in front of all, you stand in front of God and the government and all friends and family and a pastor and your church and what do you do? It's like you make commitments. You know, I mean, that's what the, I mean, anytime I train young pastors in doing weddings, I'm like, that's it. That's what the wedding's about. It's not about the open bar and the band afterwards. It's not about, you know, how good of the hotel and how wealthy the, the, the bride's parents are and how great the party's gonna be. It is about, the wedding is about one thing. It is about the public vows the bride and groom take that's it. Okay, well, that's the foundation of love is commitment or allegiance. And then there are actions, right? This is why, by the way, I say with parents, parents just feel this. No matter what happens to their kid, no matter how rebellious their kid is, no matter how many problems their kids have, you just feel it. You're like, I'm in. Allegiance, action are all of the things you promise to do and begin to do because of the commitments you've made. And then finally, the affections are what follow. The problem today is, in America, we want all of the emotions and all of the affections and all of the feelings without any of the commitment, and certainly none of the action. What love did they lose, right? He says, you, loved, you lost the love that you had at first. Well, Christians have primarily three loves. Okay, this is simple. Christians have a vertical love, God, and then they have, uh, you know, kind of, uh, we, we might say two horizontal loves, their love for the church and their love for the world. Let, let's talk about each of those. Wh which love did they lose? Did they lose their love for the world? Now, let me clarify, you're not supposed to love the value system of the world. You're supposed to love the people of the world. Let me just tell you what happens with Christians, okay? And this has happened with some of you, and you know this. That instead of loving the world, here's the three common responses that church people, Christians, can have toward the world. Number one, apathy. You know that's the opposite of love, right? I don't really care. I don't care. And it's showing up in our lack of prayer for people, in our lack of evangelism, in our lack of meeting their needs, in our lack of thought or concern. It's very easy to become apathetic toward the world. That one's more subtle and you can't always see it, okay? Another one is, I'm angry at the world, right? I'm angry at the world because it's just the way they act and the way they behave and the way they vote and the way, you know, just, it's easy to get angry at the world. Or it's easy to get afraid of the world. I mean, how many families, right? It's like, well, we can't, the kids, and, and we understand all this. It's like, well, you know, I'm worried about my kids and this world and the people around here and what they're doing. And, and so pretty soon the church becomes bomb shelter and holy huddle and monastery mindset instead of a love for the world. Secondly, they might have, <laughs> they might have lost their love for the church. The, see, the church should be your first and your primary community. I know that's like, I mean, who does that anymore, right? 
Sounds silly that I would even say that. It's like, no, no, that's, it doesn't have to be two cities, church. If you're a Christian, the church should be your first and your primary community. The main place of relationship and responsibility and discipleship. By the way, that's what you mean. When you're a part of a local church, you mean, here's what you basically are saying if you didn't know you are saying this. I have a special relationship with the other people in this church that I don't have with anyone else. I have, I have certain commitments and responsibilities to these people I don't have to anyone else. Third, he may have just lost, so, so maybe not love for the world, maybe not love for the church, maybe love for Christ himself. It's like, well, how does that, you know? It's like, well, you become familiar with forgiveness. So how do you lose your first love? Like, right? How do you lose it? Like, where'd it go? How do you? I think most of us lose it the same way. We lose it by something taking its place. I think God made you and I, we are worshipers, so something is always going to be our first love. I think there's three things that take away our first love. Sometimes it's something sinful. You know what it is for you, right? All I have to say is, what's that sinful secret maybe? Shameful, secret and shameful are the same thing anyway. For some people, there is something. They didn't, it didn't start out this way, it never does. But it, you can't treasure sin and treasure Christ in your heart at the same time. So if some sin has become prominent in your life, it becomes first. That's for some of you. Some of you, it's just something secondary. Like it could be a good secondary. It could be like wife and kids and husband and oh, those are all good. They just need to be secondary. It could be something silly. It could be like pickleball. <laughs> right? It's so humiliating, so embarrassing sometimes. You're like, how did this become so important to me? It's ridiculous. How's my soul shrunk to this size? Um, it happens though. It's like my golf game, tennis, cold plunging. <laughs> How has this become number one in my life? It can also be something where you're seeing results. So it's something sinful, it's something secondary, or, or okay, something where you're seeing results. Here's why this is, and I had to learn this as somebody who's been in full-time ministry my whole adult life. I've realized like, really early on, like a first-year ministry, this is like whatever it was, 18 years ago, I got really into, and it's hard for you to believe, I got really into working out, I know, a long time ago. Um, and, uh, but I, re- I, I kind of had this moment, I'm like, why am I so into, and why were so many of my other friends in ministry so into working out? And I don't claim to that I figured it out fully, but it was basically this, it's the only thing we know how to measure. It's very, ministry's hard to measure. Like, okay, how are your kids doing with the Lord? How are you doing with repentance in your life? And how's all your relationships that you're trying to win Christ with and, you know, or share Christ with? It's like, I, I don't know, it's really hard. It takes a long time. But I can see results. Well, Jesus tells us what we need to do if we've lost our first love. I want you to see this. Verse six, he says, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate That was verse six. Let me go back to verse five. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So I want want to just, he gives us, so we had three types of loves. We talked about that. Love for world, love for church, love for Christ. He tells us three things that we need to do if we've lost one of those or all three of those. And they're usually connected, right? You love Christ, so you love the world and you love the church. 
So they're all connected, but let me give you the three things. You saw them, remember, repent, return. Easy to remember. So in Genesis chapter three, which is you know a long time ago, but that's when sin entered the world and we call it the fall. And theologians, this is a great phrase, okay? They call it the noetic effects of the fall, okay? The noetic effects of the fall, which are the effects of sin on the brain or on the mind. And there, well, there's like 14 of them, but, but one, one of them, is that we forget. And so the first thing that we have to do, we'll get to repentance in a second, and we'll get to returning in a second. We have to remember. What do we have to remember? We have to remember the gospel. I want you to understand, guys, that the whole reason that we do this, this worship service, is in large part to remember. You're like, we sang that song a few weeks ago. I know, we want you to remember it. Right? I mean, half the time I'm up here, I'm like, didn't I already talk about this? How do I say the exact same thing to the exact same people in a different way? And it's like, oh yeah, you have to remember. It's interesting because I had a mentor tell me, he said, as a communicator, he said, there's four stages of people getting things. He said, there's, oh wow, that's stage one. I love that. If I say something, you go, ooh. Which you never do, but like every once in a while, every once in a while there's like somebody over here that goes, oh, and I'm like, yes. This is like what I live for. That, that's oh, wow. And the second stage of communication is oh, yeah. And that's also fun. It's like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Oh, yeah, that was really good. The third stage is not again. And I'm just telling you, that's not fun. But you have to get through not again to get to the final stage of communication, which is got it. Every parent knows this. We need to go through not again, not again, not again, so I can go, got it. You need to remember the gospel. Guys, that's why we sing the songs. That's why we preach the sermons. That's all we do, everything that we do. You need to remember what Jesus Christ has done for you. Secondly, with remembering, you need to remember your testimony. So he says, the love you had at first so for me, this is like, I need to remember being 16 years old, and I can remember that moment when I went to school and sat at my lunch table in public high school in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I shared with like the eight guys at the table that I'd become a Christian. Like I remember what that feels like. I remember, I was, you know, just got my license. And I remember driving to school, and I got a New Testament that my youth pastor gave me, and I was so new in the Lord, I, I, I thought it said New Testament in Palms, okay? <laughs> I didn't know the P was silent. And, and I, just remember, I just remember getting there early and I would read it and I'd, I didn't know you could highlight in your Bible, and I would highlight and I would take a verse and I'd try to apply it. I remember working at McDonald's, okay? This is not one of my fond memories right there. But I remember working at McDonald's and on my breaks, we got a 30 minute break and the McDonald's was right next to, they don't have these anymore, but it was right next to a family Christian bookstore. And I'd quickly eat my sandwich so I could go and I could see what books had come out and what new things I could learn and what, back in the day, these, there were these things called CDs and what CDs were out, okay? <laughs> you need to remember, you need to repent. Repent means, I want you to hear repentance as a positive word. I know it's, it has its negative connotation. Sometimes we have these words and they're like negative. It's like, ah. It's like, okay, here's what repent means. Your life could be different than it is. Oh, thank God. 
Repent means you could do something about the horrible decisions that you've made in the past. I mean, that's what Jesus does. I love what John Piper said. John Piper said, every once in a while, by the way, John Piper is a pastor in his 70s. He said, every once in a while, he said, and he's in his 70s, he's older. He said, every once in a while, you'll need to weep over your life and all of the sins that you've done and all of the missed opportunities that you've had. He said, but when you're done weeping over your life, wash your face, get up and trust God. That's the hope of repentance. Listen, repentance is sometimes, maybe often, it's removing something from your life. But I would say more often, it's reordering something in your life. You know what, this is just, money's become too important. I don't remove it, I reorder it. My hobbies and personal health have become too important. It's time to reorder it. Christ needs to be number one. Which means the final thing he says is return. Okay, that's interesting. The way that we go forward in the Christian life is often to go back. I think it was Martin Luther, he said, the way to progress in the Christian life is always to begin again. What do you need to start doing again? You, you know, I had a guy years ago, he said, he's, he's, he was my boss's boss's boss. He was in campus ministry. A guy named Joe Naramore, great guy. He's been in campus ministry for 25 years. I remember talking to him about five years ago. He said, Kyle, I'm memorizing scripture again. Hadn't done that in a while. He said, now I'm doing it for the right reasons. I learned this discipline a long time ago and I did it to do it. And he said, now I've returned and it means so much to me. I'm beginning to memorize scripture for the right reasons. Where was the last place you met with God? Go back there. For, you, so for some of you, you know, it's like a, there's a person you need to call. There's a place. Some of you need to get in the car or get on a plane. There's a place you need to visit. There's a book you need to read. There's a song you need to listen to. There's still five or 10 songs that when I put them back, put them on, it transports me back to the year 2001. I wanna close by seeing what Jesus ends to say, saying to the church. He always ends with a promise here. He says this, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. At the end of each time, he points us to heaven. I, the, the reason I'm glad that we started with this church, if I could just speak maybe a, a rhema moment to our church right now, is here, here's my fear, guys. My fear is if there's any, and I've read all of them, okay? If there's any of the seven churches that you and I are most likely to become, it is the church at Ephesus. It is a church that has, hopefully, good theology and good Bible teaching and servant-hearted, and we've got the serve one, attend one culture, and we're doing all of these great works, but at the same time, we have lost our first love. And if there's one thing that this first church teaches us, it's very simple, it teaches us this, that when you lose your love, you lose your light. Did you notice that Jesus says to the church, I didn't show you this part, we just didn't have enough time. Jesus says, hey, listen, if this doesn't change, if you don't return to your first love, I'm gonna remove your lampstand. Do you know that Jesus does that to churches? I mean, I wish I could put us all in some big you know, van and we could drive around the city. 
And we could say, hey, listen, I know they've got a building and I know they've got staff and they've got some programs, but it's not obvious to everybody else. And it is to every true believer, that church is dead. That church has been dead for years. And I don't know exactly when they lost their love, but it's obvious that they've lost their light. Guys, we want to be a salty and bright lighthouse in our city. We, we so desire to be a counterculture. We desire to be an attractive alternative. And to do that, we can't lose our love. So I just want to give us a moment. Now, wherever you are, I want you to just take this personal, okay? It's the beginning of the year, okay? You can still be a different, godlier version of yourself, okay, than you were at the beginning of this year. If you'll, if you'll close your eyes, bow your head, I want to give you a chance to just think about the three things that Jesus calls us to do, okay? The first thing he says is remember, okay? And some of you need to have a Peter moment. Do you remember what happened with Peter? Peter, after doing something three times that he knew was wrong, the moment that changed his life is it said, he remembered the words of Jesus and he wept. Some of you, it's going to be, we know this, books don't change people's lives, paragraphs don't change people's lives, sentences do. And sometimes it's just going to be a verse. And I'm, I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would take a verse and you'd apply it to each person's heart in this room and you would help them to remember. Lord, I pray for repentance, Lord. Help us to see repentance as a positive word, Lord. Help us right now. This is the beautiful thing. We can repent right where we are. We can remove something by faith. We can reorder something by faith. Would you help us to do it? Lord, and would you help us to return? Lord, as we stand and as we sing in a minute here, would we return? I want to say to, to the church that as we, in just a moment, as we sing, there's going to be prayer teams on both sides. And for some of you, the way you're going to go back, like Jesus said, you're going to go back by coming forward. And you're going to come forward and you're going to say pray. And Two Cities Church will be a place where people discover and rediscover their first love. Lord, would you do it? Would you do it for your glory? Would you do it for our good? Would you do it for the good of the city? Would you make us bright and salty? Would you deepen our affections, our allegiance, and our actions toward you, toward each other, and toward a lost and dying world? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.